Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the films playing at International Cinema at Brigham Young University. This podcast is being taped during our 11th week of BYU's winter semester 2021. I'm Doug Weatherford, co-director of International Cinema, and I'm joined by Annalisa Howling, my colleague in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese. Annalisa is assistant professor of Portuguese. She speaks both Spanish and Portuguese, but teaches uh, primarily on the Portuguese side of the aisle. Her research focuses on early modern Iberian women writers from Portugal and Spain. And Annalisa and I will be discussing today the 2006 film, The Year My Parents Went on Vacation by Brazilian director Cal Hamburger. It's great to have you with us today, Annalisa. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. We're, we're thrilled to have you here. And I might point out to our listeners that it's possible that we might have some spoilers in our conversation. And uh, so if you want to avoid those, you might consider seeing the film before listening to our podcast. Annalisa, I, I love this film, The Year My Parents Went on Vacation. The title is particularly interesting. It really is a metaphor for what is really going on in the film. The parents don't actually go on vacation. And I'm just wondering if you could start us out by briefly explaining the context of this film that takes place in Brazil in 1970. Yeah, absolutely. This film takes place about in the middle of the military dictatorship in Brazil, sometimes called the Anos de Chumbo, or the Years of Lead. Uh, so this is from 1964 to uh, 1985. And uh, this is, a, you know, something that's happening all over South America at this time. There's torture, incarceration, disappearances. Uh, there's an estimation that uh, over 400 people were killed during this time. People, of course, leave the country, go into exile. And so what's happening here, obviously, is that Modu's parents, as you said, are not on vacation, but are, are fleeing political persecution. And, and the film doesn't give us a lot of information about where they're going, but it's it's clear from the situation what's happening here. Yeah, and I might point out as well that, uh, you know, there are quite a few films from Latin America, Argentina, Chile, Peru, for example, that uh, have as the primary focus or perhaps as the background uh, this period in the middle to late 20th century that dealt with the military dictatorships. And so it really is a theme that has been well thought out in uh, Latin American cinema. So one of the fun things about this film as well is the fact that it takes place during the World Cup of 1970. And I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about the importance of soccer in Brazil and how soccer and particularly this World Cup plays into this film. It's hard to overstate the importance, uh, the cultural significance of, of soccer in Brazil. And the, the 1970 World Cup is interesting for, for several reasons. One, it's uh, the first time that, that the World Cup is held outside of Europe or South America because it's held in, in Mexico uh, this year. And it ends up being Brazil's third win. They overcome some psychological barriers when they win. They played uh, against Uruguay in the previous World Cup and lost, and that was sort of a, a very damaging loss for them. 
And so to come back and just do amazingly well throughout the whole World Cup, you know, in every one of their matches is really important for Brazil, especially they're in this moment of, of dictatorship and it's this really bright spot for a lot of people. And the team that, that plays and, and wins this, and they win against Italy, their final matches against Italy. And, and the team that plays is considered to be really one of the greatest teams ever assembled and, and headed, of course, by Pelé, who is just a legend in the soccer world. And so I think this is something we see in the film as well, right, as, as a sport that unites everyone, regardless of, of race or religion or background, everybody is watching the 1970 World Cup. Yeah, and I think there's a really fun parallel editing sequence towards the end where the World Cup is playing in the background. And uh, so the director shows us different scenes from different households and different spaces, and everybody is cheering uh, for uh, this team. And I think that you're right. This is a moment very difficult for Brazil, of course, during the military dictatorship, but uh, Humberger found a way to celebrate the Brazilian at a time that is very difficult for the nation. Exactly. So I wanted you uh, to talk as well, perhaps a little bit about the space and place in this film. So we've talked a little bit about the time frame. We've talked a little bit about the importance of soccer, but geography is really important in this film as well. What can you tell us about where the action takes place? Yeah, so the family, Mauro's, Mauro and his parents live in, in Belo Horizonte, and they travel down to São Paulo, right? And they go to his grandfather's house, and his grandfather lives in the Bon Retiro neighborhood of São Paulo. And this is a heavily immigrant neighborhood of São Paulo. Between 1930 and 1947, it's estimated that around 30,000 Jews uh, arrive in this neighborhood and settle there, of course, coming from, from Europe and other places. But in the 1970s, it's, it's very diverse. There is a very large Jewish population, but there are also Italians and Syrians and Greeks. And it's very diverse, very international sort of neighborhood. It's one that's changed over time today. It's it's Bolivians and Koreans, but it's also important culturally for other reasons. It, it's where the Museo de Arte Sacra de São Paulo is, so the, the Museum of Sacred Art, and also the Museo da Língua Portuguesa, the Museum of, of the Portuguese Language, which is a fantastic museum. But um, this is a whole new world for Mauro when he arrives, because it becomes clear that, that uh, he is exposed to a completely different culture, a completely different neighborhood, completely different sort of ways of being and living. And so the Bonhechiro neighborhood is a really interesting setting to have this play out in. And it's kind of fun to learn that uh, this film is at least semi-autobiographical in the sense that it connects to some of the experiences of the director, who also came from a mixed uh, religious background, including Jewish ancestors. And I, I'm wondering what you felt about the importance of Jewish culture in this film, that perhaps uh, we as, as spectators who aren't of that faith, you know, get an insight into what uh, being Jewish in this particular neighborhood of Sao Paulo in this particular time period might have been like. But also the, the primary character, Mauro, also kind of gets that uh, lesson in what it means to be Jewish since he hasn't been raised that way. Right. I, I think it's so interesting because we sort of we sort of go through that initiation with Mauro, right? We're sort of introduced to different 
ways of being and living and thinking and believing at the same time he is. And it's obviously something that he has no idea about. And so, you know, even, even the words, right? So, so when uh, Shlomo sees him, the first time he sees him, he speaks Yiddish to him and, and Maru has no idea what's, what's going on. But I think that one of the things that I think is really beautiful about this film is after the initial sort of discussion at the synagogue about who's going to take care of this kid and everyone wants to wash their hands of him, the rabbi says, you know, he showed up at your door, Shlomo, for a reason, and this is your responsibility. And he really becomes, he, he really is adopted into this this community of of Jews, even though he is a goy, right, as they call him, because they realize he's uncircumcised and he's not considered to be Jewish. And, you know, they, they have this, the pet name for him of, of Moishala, which is Mo- Moses, right, sort of an abandoned uh, child taken care of by the daughter of, of Pharaoh. And there's this really great moment when Mauro looks at Shlomo when they're sitting at the table eating and he just kind of he has this inside joke thinking of Shlomo as the, the daughter of the Pharaoh. Um, but I, I love, I love the scenes. There's sort of this montage of scenes when Mauro goes from house to house, right. And everyone's feeding him and everyone's taking care of him. And so I think there's a sort of really, really beautiful sense of community there. Yeah. And uh, you know, it was fun for me because uh, I, I speak some German not a whole lot anymore, but, uh, you know, to hear the Yiddish in the film and to be able to understand a lot of it, which of course is a a Germanic uh, variation. So I think that the Jewish iconography and celebrations and community within the film are are definitely one of the pleasures of watching this film. Perhaps uh, we should uh, just uh, clarify for those who maybe haven't seen the film, and that is that uh, Mauro's parents have left rapidly because they're 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 leaving Brazil, right? They're going into exile, at least trying to do so because they believe that the military government and and police are after them, and so he is left and abandoned at uh, at his grandfather's doorstep in the exact moment that his grandfather has passed away from a heart attack up the street at his business. And, and so this idea of abandonment and uh, isolation and separation, but also the search for inclusion and uh, belonging and community is a really important part of this film. You mentioned the word initiation, and I love this film in large part because it is an initiation story. And I'm wondering if you could uh, tell us a little bit more some of the ways in which you see this as the representation of the initiation of Mauro. Yeah, there's, there's a definite, I mean, it's definitely a coming of age story, right? And he's, he's young, he's, I think he's 12 in the film. And, and like, as you said, he's sort of abandoned, right? His, his parents think that they're leaving him in the care of a relative and that relative is, is no longer there. And so there's, there's a lot of self-discovery. There's, I'm thinking of moments for example, when he tries to cook eggs and burns himself or, you know, trying to, trying to sort of survive on his own and live on his own, trying to get into the, his grandfather's balcony from, from Shlomo's balcony or, you know, just trying to sort of strike out on his own and, and realizing that he, he needs other people. I'm also thinking of the moment when, when Hannah invites him to eat at her house and he refuses or when she brings him food and, and he says, oh, I'm not hungry. Sort of that desire to be independent contrasted with the realization that, that he, he does need a community. And of course, there's also the initiation to the the group of friends. He he meets Hannah and and the boys, and they kind of run around the neighborhood together. And of course, Hannah takes them back to her mother's dress shop, 
and sneaks the boys in for a fee and has them sort of peep through into the dressing rooms. And so there's a there's a sexual initiation as well, right? But especially around Irene, who is uh, who works at the bar locally, and she is beautiful, and she's you know looks like she's maybe in her twenties. And of course, everyone, all the boys in the neighborhood, just think that she's amazing. And so there's that sort of initiation as well. There's a really interesting initiation, I think, involving soccer as well, right? Because before we see him playing the the button soccer, just kind of on his own. And then we see him later playing with the kids and he's the goalie and he's part of this team. And so I think he's initiated into various groups. And I think he's also, he realizes, I love the moment when he says he's, he's watching um, Edgar, who's the, the goalie. And he says, I realized in that moment I wanted to be, I wanted to be a goalie and I wanted to be black, right? And so there's a, an initiation also as far as what what Brazil is, right? I mean, the director said, you know, Brazil is a country of, of immigrants, immigrants from everywhere. Brazil's made of immigrants. And so this exposure to people that are that are different from him and yet somehow the same, I think, is is a really important thing too. Right. And just the fact that he is considered a goy, right? Uh, somebody yeah. who's not a part of the Jewish faith, even though perhaps he could have been, you know, because he's an uncircumcised. Yeah. I, I, I have to admit that uh, in watching this film again in preparation for this, I, I really got a sense that there was a lot of sandlot in this film. Yes. And so for those of the <laughs> listeners out there who like the film shot here in Utah called Sandlot, you know, it has a group of boys and it takes place over a summer in which one outcast who uh, ends up uh, finding his belonging within a group of boys. I, I think there's a lot of fun things that people will see there. One of the things that we've already mentioned in kind of our email communications together is that there there really is an important formal element in the way that uh, Humberger finds ways to tell this initiation story. And I, I'm thinking specifically about framing and how framing within the film kind of helps create the sense of this individual who is lost and seeking connection and seeking meaning. I'm wondering if uh, you might talk to us about some of the technical aspects of the film. Yeah, absolutely. The The framing here is really interesting. And this is, I mean, this is not my idea. This is, um, I, I attended a presentation, a fantastic presentation by Dr. Beyer on this film. And I had, hadn't really paid that much attention to the framing, but I, watching it again, it's so fascinating how um, how often Mauro is framed in this film. It's not just Mauro, there are other characters too, but especially Mauro. We see him through doorways, through windows. Um, we see reflections, you know, he's, he's on sort of one side of a, a barrier and there's a reflection on the other side. Um, we see him framed through people as well. And it feels very intimate, right? It feels in some moments like we're kind of spying on Mauro. We're sort of getting this intimate look into his life that maybe we shouldn't even have. But there's also a definite feeling of separation. He's alone a lot, especially when I, uh, he's framed sort of in the balcony of his of his grandfather's apartment. There are lots of shots too that are long shots and, and, and frame him in a way that make him look very small. So I think it really emphasizes or underscores this idea that he's separate, that he's different, that he's alone. But I feel that it changes as well. One of my very favorite shots is towards the end of the film, when his mother returns and and is going away with him, taking him away. He's in the car 
and you can see him through the window, but you also see Shlomo's reflection on that window, sort of superimposed over his image. And I think that's this really beautiful moment where he realizes, I think he's known it before, but maybe it's maybe the audience realizes better that he's he's not alone, right? He's he's no longer an outsider. He's he's part of of something bigger than himself. Yeah, I really like that uh, image as well. And there was a, a moment at the very beginning of the film, right, when uh, Shlomo all of a sudden realizes that he's going to have to be the one to take care of this boy, where they don't know where his parents are and his grandfather has just passed away. And he says, uh, he's not my family, right? And at the very end, of course, that is contradicted by the fact that they take a picture of each other in in the park so that they can remember each other. And also in that particular scene where even though Mauro is leaving, you know, that the, uh, the impression on the glass of, of uh, Shlomo suggests that they are family, maybe not by blood, but certainly by faith, by community, by experience. Another point I might uh, make uh, since you uh, opened the door for it is the fact that, you know, opening and closing doors is just a really incredible leitmotif in this film, that it seems like uh, frequently we are supposed to understand that there are things that uh, Mauro doesn't understand about what's going on in his life, about what's going on with his parents, and especially what's going on with the politics of the country. And so as doors open and close, and we get uh, a framing devices where uh, we frequently see objects that are placed in front of the camera, I think just kind of shows us, tells us that this is an incomplete story that we're seeing this movie from a child's perspective who might actually believe that his parents have gone on vacation, but in, in actuality, they're running from potential political violence. And I'm just wondering, Annalisa, if uh, you might talk a little bit more about whether you consider this film to be a complete initiation. I've kind of wondered that myself, right? Whether Mauru actually does learn through the process of this film. And uh, we have an off-screen narrator who uh, who tells some of the story, and it is Mauru himself. And I've just wondered if we should see Mauru as a dynamic character who changes or what has he experienced throughout this film. Yeah, it's interesting. I the director actually said, you know, that he wanted to tell this story. He said that one of the things that interests him about the movie is really Mauru more than the political situation. But I, I do think that there is a development of this main character throughout the movie. And I think a lot of that has to do with Italo, right, which is a, someone that lives in the neighborhood. He's a son of immigrants and he's obviously sort of on the wrong side of the <laughs> of politics in this moment. And they have there's that scene uh, where the the military police come and and take people away, and and then later uh, Mauru finds Italu hiding in the apartment building, and he's been you know bashed over the head. And I, I do think I don't think that Mauru completely understands the political situation. I, I don't think that, but I do think there's a bit of a, a loss of innocence there, right? He he feels abandoned by his parents, and then someone that he meets in the neighborhood that knows his parents is is attacked by the police, which is, you know, supposed to be a force that that takes care of the population. And so I, I do think he does learn. I do think he grows up a bit, but I, I don't think that he completely understands the situation, but I do think there's growth there. 
Yeah, I think one of the interesting questions is when exactly the um, the voiceover narration takes place, mm. right? Is it like, for example, in Sandlock, we also Sandlock, we also have the voiceover narration, but it's when the main protagonist is now a bit older and can look back on uh, this childhood summer, and uh, so we get during the the uh, period of the film, a representation of what it was like to see the world through a child's eyes, but the voiceover narrator is is now an adult. Whereas I, I kind of sense that perhaps the voiceover narrator is not far removed from that time period. And it's still, at least in my mind, our listeners may disagree with me when they see the film, but as you see the conclusion of the film, ask yourselves whether, uh, you know, the fact that uh, Mauro does now understand that his parents weren't on vacation and that was a metaphor, or does he still perhaps uh, in, in that moment where he doesn't clearly see uh, the reality of the politics and uh, governance of his country? Yeah, and I think I think the very, very end too, sort of, there's that reiteration of the phrase that happens at the beginning of the film about his, his dad being late, right? I, I do think he understands in that moment that his dad isn't coming back. And I think that that's a, that's a, it's a definite loss of innocence, right? At that moment. Yeah. Uh, well, one of the things that I, I most like about this film is that it, it's a celebration of the multicultural nature of this neighborhood, that it gives us insights into this uh, very important Jewish community that uh, must have felt very much like outsiders in some respects uh, within the, uh, the Brazilian uh, national context. But it's also a film that uh, celebrates both youth and old age, right? Mm -hmm. You have those characters who are in their 20s that are very important to the film. But I, I really felt comfortable with a film that wanted to show us a 12-year-old boy and uh, you know a 70-plus-year-old man and the friendship and perhaps uh, metaphorical familial relationship that grows out of it. I was wondering, Annalisa, if there are some moments that you particularly like about the film that you might guide our listeners to uh, watching out for. I was thinking, I was thinking about uh, when they go to the bar mitzvah and they have the, the the celebration afterward. It's sort of that moment when Mauro is sitting with Hannah, and another girl comes to sit on the other side of Mauro, and I just, I just love watching Hannah's face, her expression uh, in that moment. And when, when Mauro goes out on the dance floor with this girl and it's a bit awkward and strange. And then he, he really sort of lets go on the dance floor and, and they, and, and pulls Hannah out with him. And I, I, it's a really sort of beautiful moment when I think that Mauro feels completely comfortable and accepted and knows that he has friends and, and there's a sort of, hint at a, a budding young romance that I think is just pretty sweet. <laughs> and Hannah is uh, one of the great characters of this film. She is a lot of fun. You know, it, it's kind of interesting. I always like to, before I re uh, talk about a film, to kind of look on uh, Rotten Tomatoes and see what some of the reactions to the film were. And, and uh, this film was right in about the mid 80%, I think it was 86% for critics and 80, 86%, somewhere in there. Uh, for audience. Uh, and I think most people really like this film that was 
submitted by Brazil for its uh, nomination to the Oscars in 2007. It, it wasn't ultimately nominated, unfortunately, but it has had a lot of success. But there are a few people who are detractors of the film who think, for example, that it's too obscure in its references to the political uh, situation of the moment, or that perhaps it's too slow moving. I fully disagree. <laughs> I love this film. I think if you love uh, films about initiation, films about community, that you really like this film. Uh, what are some of the potential perhaps downfalls that you might see in the film that somebody might not like about uh, the year my parents went on vacation? Well, yeah, I mean, if you're if you're looking for a film that deals directly with the dictatorship in Brazil, that, that's that's just not this film, right? That the dictatorship is is the backdrop for Mauro's story. And I think I agree with you in your disagreement of, of the assessment of this film that it's it's really told, you know, formally and, and you know, in the narrative and, and everything from the perspective of a child, right? And so the film gives you as much information about the dictatorship as maybe a child would know. And, and I think there's, there's something to be said about looking at it through this sort of innocent lens. And, you know, soccer is also sort of a backdrop to this story. It's important, obviously, but it's, it's not a soccer film necessarily. And, and it's not necessarily a dictatorship film. I mean, it really is about, about Modu, about community, right? Like you said, and about initiation. There's a, there's a great scene in which we see perhaps more about the military dictatorship than we'll see in any other part of the film. And that's when uh, police soldiers arrive to arrest, I, I think it's the student union right at the university, and they come in with horses and clubs. And, and so we get perhaps a perspective. But I love that sequence because the camera drops and the, and the camera throughout the film is almost entirely handheld. There are a few moments when you can tell that the camera is placed on a on a, a, a tripod or something, but it's handheld, but the camera drops to about the height of Mauru and Hannah, who are also there seeing that. And so instead of seeing the scene from the eyes of the adults, you see it from the eyes of the kids. And not only do you see the chaos of what's going on, but you're blocked by all of the adults who are taller and bigger than these children. And I think that that uh, reinforces what you're suggesting, that this is shown from a child's perspective. And Elisa, we're almost out of time, but I was kind of hoping that uh, we might spend just a couple of minutes, maybe each of us talking about some of our other favorite uh, Brazilian films. For those uh, listeners who aren't, uh, who haven't seen a lot of Brazilian film, maybe you could offer a suggestion, a title or two of where to go next of films that you really like from this country that is one of the the great filmmaking countries of South America, but uh, still is struggling uh, even today to find its voice as uh, as a filmmaking powerhouse. I really love and always teach uh, Central do Brasil, which I think is Central Station in English. I think that is just a fantastic film, also a sort of a, a moment of initiation, but also about community and, and family and sort of creating family where you don't have any. It also provides a really interesting contrast between the rural and the urban in Brazil. 
and I, I just think it's a it's a it's a beautiful film. It's a kind film. It's it's a sad film, but it's it's just one of my favorites. So I would I would really highly recommend Central Station. Yeah, directed by Walter Salas. Salas. How do you pronounce that in Portuguese? Salas. Salas. It's the film that I would have recommended. Absolutely, my favorite, all-time favorite uh, Brazilian film uh, from 1998. Yeah, it has one of the greatest uh, acting. Uh, performances by uh, Fernanda Montenegro, I think it is, right? Yes. And if you like female actors who are really talented, I'll have to jump to another couple of films that are acted by uh, Regina Casse. And uh, one of them we are showing uh, this semester at International Cinema, and it's called uh, Three Summers. And I think that will play our last week between April 7th and April 10th. And the one that I actually like uh, a little bit more by her is Second Mother, which are two just outstanding films with just amazing acting. And uh, I would encourage uh, our listeners to uh, look into these three films, which I think are uh, show some of the just amazing things that are coming out of Brazil. Do you uh, have any other uh, comments that you'd like to make before we uh, uh, finish up? I, like you, really, really love this film. It is one of my favorites, and I I always – I show my students often, and so I would just recommend – going to see it uh, and and watching it again, right? Sort of watching it multiple times and looking for those those framing elements and, and sort of the camera placement and those kinds of things and, and just appreciating it for, for what it is. Great. Thank you very much, Annalisa. It was great to have you on here and to hear your uh, passion and excitement and expertise uh, on and about this film. And I'll thank you, our listeners, for joining us today on From the Booth. This podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU and is supported by the BYU College of Humanities. We are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here as they do not represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. We thank our producer, Dewey Walter, our sound engineer, Marina Hickstrom-Pratt, and Johnny Stallings, who composed our intro and outro music. Visit ic.byu.edu for more information on how current BYU students faculty and staff can stream this semester's international cinema films until next week keep streaming